If you thought HQ was a great idea and wish you could play games like this for your business, check out The Q. The Q has built B2B tools to allow any business to embed interactive video directly into their app or even on the web. The Q has trivia, predictive sports games, popular choice games, and much more. Check out www.theq.live and see if you can get in the game. That's www.theq.live. John F. Kennedy International Airport. Please remain seated with your seatbelts fastened until the fastened seatbelt sign is switched off. I arrived in New York early Thursday morning, February 20th, with a lot to do. The story was moving fast. The previous Friday, news broke that HQ was no more. Game over for HQ Trivia, the once popular mobile quiz app officially shut down Friday, laying off 25 employees. But since then, there had been a few interesting developments. And most of them were playing out, where else? On Twitter. In the February 14th all-hands meeting where Russ had dissolved the company, he told the HQ staff that they wouldn't be given severance and that the players who had won money in the game wouldn't be able to cash out. Understandably, both of those groups were not happy. The fans grumbled about maybe filing a class action lawsuit against the company, but employees were revved up in organizing. A bunch of them had gathered in a rogue slack to vent and find new jobs for the people who'd just been laid off. People were really angry, and the rest of my week's schedule was filled with employees who wanted to speak on the record about their experience at HQ. But then, Russ went on his own PR offensive. The day the company shut down, he tweeted, With HQ, we showed the world the future of TV. We didn't get to where we hoped, but we did stretch the world's imagination for what's possible on our smartphones. Thanks to everyone who helped build this, and thanks for playing. The next day, he responded to one of Scott's angry tweets with a single word. Hugs. That same weekend, HQ's Twitter account posted a phone number people could call into and leave voicemails. Soon enough, some of that audio made its way onto HQ's Instagram account. Bring back the fucking show. You had De Niro, you had The Rock, you had Cookie Monster. Come on, get those guys back. Oh my gosh, dude, what the hell happened? I need to have HQ Trivia back. I don't know what's happening. I'm going to call every day until it comes back. I need it, I need it, I need it. I also took the opportunity to call the hotline to let Russ know I was trying to reach him, since he hadn't replied to the interview request I'd sent him that weekend. Hi there, this is Alyssa Bereznak from The Ringer. Uh, We're working on a narrative podcast about HQ, and I'm looking to get in touch with Russ. Uh, You can call me back at... Thank you. Russ never responded to that voicemail, and still hasn't scheduled the time for an interview with me. In addition to drumming up HQ nostalgia, on the Monday after the shutdown, Russ wrote a message in the company's Slack channel. A former HQ employee sent me a screenshot of it. Here's what it said. I spent the entire weekend ensuring we will all get full payroll due this week, plus severance, plus unused PTO from the new policy, plus all individual contractors paid in full, plus players getting their cash prices. Nothing signed yet, but I am close, so please bear with me as I get more answers soon. 
He also pinged the whole channel to ask a curious question. If given the opportunity, would any engineers want to keep working at HQ? Then, on February 18th, four days after this dramatic shutdown, Russ started a tweet thread that began with this message. On Friday, I announced that HQ Trivia was shutting down after a failed acquisition. Well, it was a busy weekend, and HQ will live on. I'm Alyssa Bereznak, and this is Boom Bust, the rise and fall of HQ Trivia. Capitalizing on media coverage, especially media coverage about failures and feuds, is now a go-to strategy to get ahead in the world. My earliest memories of this symbiotic relationship between celebrities and the media are from the gossip tabloids of my youth. Each week, in the pages of Us Weekly and In Touch, I'd see Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, and Kim Kardashian exploiting their messy lives for the paparazzi, which ultimately helped them land reality shows and perfume deals. Easy access to social media has made it so socialites aren't the only ones who can profit from having their personal dramas play out on the world stage. Now, anyone with enough media savvy, whether a politician, a journalist, or an executive, can lean into the public intrigue of their personal lives as a professional advantage. We are all part of this machine that rewards engagement at any cost, and those who overshare online will probably be able to build a following faster. This kind of attention-seeking has also proven to be a useful tool in Silicon Valley. CEOs and investors can be influencers in their own way, too. You don't need to look much further than Elon Musk's Twitter feed to know that the cult of personality around a CEO can sometimes help drive sales at a company. Even if, meanwhile, that same CEO's tweets spur securities fraud charges. When the focus is on an individual rather than their professional responsibilities, every victory and blunder is received the same way among a loyal fandom. It's entertainment. And all someone has to do is keep tweeting through it. As I watched this whole HQ resurrection play out, I was in awe over the way that Russ was writing this wave of media coverage. In the comments he'd made that week, he wasn't necessarily taking responsibility for HQ's failure or its abrupt closure. Rather, he had recast himself as the savior of a beleaguered internet company who had worked all weekend to fulfill what were basic financial obligations to his users and employees. On top of that, he had spun this burst of media attention around the shutdown, around the messy HQ After Dark show, and around Scott's comments into a suspiciously quick comeback, thanks to an undisclosed mystery investor. In a way, it was a reiteration of all the online forces that helped turn HQ trivia into this bright burning star in the first place. It seemed like, to Russ, the story of HQ was now just as valuable, if not more valuable, than the app itself. And it was the perfect moment to hit the restart button. Just this time around, you wouldn't have to pay so many people's salaries. As I soon found out, Russ wasn't the only one who was treating this moment as an opportunity. That brings me back to my trip to New York. As I got to work reporting that Thursday, I realized a lot of my sources had gone silent. I chalked some of that up to the fact that Russ was asking recently laid-off employees to sign non-disparagement agreements in exchange for severance. But other sources I'd been in touch with had left the company a while ago, 
and their sudden unresponsiveness didn't make sense to me. I was frankly starting to worry that I would just be stuck in New York in February with no reporting to do. All that was in the back of my mind when I went to my most important meeting of the day. Coffee with Scott Rogowski. Some background here. I had been pursuing Scott as a source for a while at this point, and I considered him an essential voice in HQ's story. He'd resisted recording with me thus far, but as I was about to get on my plane to New York, he called me out of the blue, and we made plans to chat the following day. So I met him at this cafe in Soho called Ground Support. I didn't record our conversation, but later on I called my editor, Amanda, to update her. I tell him about the podcast. We're working through it. Like, we have episodes down. You know, I give him an idea of who's spoken on the record so far. And I give him a rough idea of what our plan is for when we want to release it. Okay. Um, And he has a lot of questions that are not usually questions my sources ask me. (laughs) He asked about a possible revenue-sharing situation among the HQ staff in terms of the profits of this podcast. Scott said he saw value in the story of HQ. And with many of his former out-of-work colleagues in mind, he suggested The Ringer pay those who chose to participate in this podcast. I explained to him that this was a journalistic endeavor and we wouldn't be paying our sources. The rest of my conversation with Scott was pretty standard. We discussed New York real estate and the mini reunion the staff had thrown at a bar nearby called Gatsby's earlier in the week. Scott apparently bought drinks for everyone so they could mourn the company properly. Russ was not invited. As I was leaving, I made a final plea to Scott to be on the podcast. I thought the conversation went pretty well, all things considered. I left and went about my day checking off a few other reporting tasks on my to-do list. And then, I got this tip related to Scott. A tip that I later confirmed from a few different sources on background. And this was very much something I needed to discuss with Amanda. My source tells me that apparently Scott has been communicating with other HQ employees in their rogue Slack group. Yes, this Slack venting channel. The Slack venting channel. Is there any other kind of Slack channel? But anyway. And asking them not to speak to me. Okay. Uh, Why? Apparently, Scott said that he saw this as a kind of entertainment deal. Something along the lines of, think of us as the talent and them as the production company. Oh, my God. Um, Stop it. (laughs) One of the quotes was, we don't owe the ringer anything. Oh, my God. Okay, Um, keep going. And I mean, that's true. That's true. Yeah, they don't owe us anything. And also that he estimated he could get a cut of $5,000 each for everyone who participated based on his own calculations of certain advertising dollars of popular podcasts. Oh, finally, he also said that he would reach out to our boss, Bill Simmons. The one and only. (laughs) Via some of his people to see if he could have a meeting with him to talk about a sort of revenue-sharing model or potentially be in charge of the editorial vision of this podcast. So in sum, staging a coup of the podcast that I am hosting. (laughs) That is breathtaking. 
What was your response to that? Because I'm still working through it. The, the hubris of that is tremendous. Yeah, this is what I have to say. Like, part of building trust with a source is building a relationship with them. And I had been speaking with Scott since the past spring, and I had interviewed him far before that. So it was odd, especially after having such a friendly conversation with Scott to find out that he may have been collecting information I was offering him to launch a competing product. I should say that in addition to the Slack messages that were recounted to me by multiple sources, I confirmed that Scott reached out to The Ringer via an intermediary, which I have to admit, just felt a little disrespectful. To echo his words, Yes, the former employees of HQ did not owe me anything. But reporting is nevertheless a people-centric business. Scott knew I'd been working on this project for a long time and that I cared a lot about it. But that didn't seem to stop him. Obviously, compared to all the online and in-person harassment, not to mention the real physical danger that reporters face every day, this was a minuscule offense. Even so, I have to admit, it stung a little bit. just put it this way. In your reporting experience, is this something that happens to you a lot? <laughs> no. No, it's not. <laughs> this is pretty wild. I don't think any of us have ever experienced anything like this. Um, and I, you know, when I was sort of making sense of this moment, I thought, well, Scott was also part of the HQ rebellion. Mm -hmm. And this is not necessarily new behavior. So I guess, I don't know. I mean, there's no way I could have expected this to happen. But maybe it's not so surprising. <laughs> no, in a lot of ways, it's a perfect summary of everything that's going on because everyone does think that it's their story to tell and their money to make. You know, I don't blame people for having some kind of dollar sign in their eye in this situation. Sure, like, a lot of people just lost their jobs. I do understand that. Yeah, like people need money to survive. It Not only that, it's like to go from the high of what you thought HQ could be and to see it sort of crumble into a, a worthless thing, you're thinking, well, is there any way to still get that comeuppance? Like, is there any way to still make a buck off of this crazy experience and all of those insane hours I worked? Maybe it's with a story. So, I mean, I think it speaks to, like, a lot of things to the media environment. <laughs> sure. I was going to say HQ is an entertainment company, and so to an extent it makes sense that they would be thinking this as a of this as an entertainment proposition. It's savvy, right? Like it's part of the reason that we pursued this story sure. was we thought thematically it's very rich, but it's also a riveting tale. Yes. Unfortunately, we're journalists and this is a journalistic enterprise, which is different than an entertainment undertaking. Not unfortunately, <laughs> that's the best way to tell the story. I mean, unfortunately for them <laughs> because yes. it's I, Can I ask uh, you one more question? Sure. Did the source who let you know about this explain why he or she was tipping you off? I think they thought it was not fair. Yeah. Shout I, out to the brain loan resistor of the podcast coup, the revenge podcast coup. This is wild. Yeah. And honestly, I just had to sit on that for a little bit. I had two cocktails. Good. <laughs> what kind? It was like an orange blossom lemonade situation. Okay. You love a specialty cocktail. I do. Yeah. I do. I don't usually drink two cocktails in a row, but this was a special night for me. Okay. <laughs> 
After all that, I went back to my hotel, ordered some ramen, did some breathing exercises, and wrote down everything I could remember from my day. The next morning, I woke up to discover that the situation had evolved. How are you feeling this morning? I feel better, but that's partially because something seems to have shifted. I got a tip off from someone that just something good was happening in the Slack. That's how they put it. Okay. And a couple minutes later, or, you know, within the next two hours, I got people started reaching back out to me, people who I had reached out to, who I wanted to meet with while I was here. They were started to reply. So do you think the coup failed? I don't know. <laughs> so you're just going to keep trying to talk to people? Yeah. Okay. As a meeting setup, I have a purpose in New York now. It feels great. I can't tell you how much I'm enjoying this. I, now, <laughs> like, now that we've quashed the coup, this is tremendous. And I cannot wait to hear what you find out. And also the lesson of this is like never stage a coup on Slack. Yeah, I would say that's probably good advice. Okay. Well, good luck. Please keep us updated and keep having a moderate amount of specialty cocktails. <laughs> Thanks, Amanda. <laughs> They'll be expensed. More after this. Water Cooler Trivia is a weekly trivia contest for work teams. It's super customizable, low-stakes weekly fun, and contests and results are even sent over email or Slack. Remote work can be isolating, so it's especially important now for teams to look for new ways to connect, and a weekly trivia contest always sparks conversation. You choose the categories and difficulty for your team and can even choose the timing, like a Monday morning contest with results sent on Tuesday. You can even choose a personalized category that Water Cooler Trivia will write for just you each week. It's crazy easy to get started. It takes just under 20 seconds, and then you receive a join link to share with coworkers, and then the weekly quizzes start. Tons of companies are digging Water Cooler Trivia, from teams at Lyft, Nike, Bain & Company, all the way up to a group of high school teachers in Arkansas. A more connected work team and weekly trivia fun? That's a win-win scenario. Head to watercoolertrivia.com slash boom, and you'll get four weeks completely free, no credit card required. That's watercoolertrivia.com slash boom for four free weeks. And now, back to the show. That weekend, I got a text from Scott that said, do you have time to record with me on Monday? My answer, of course was yes. Hey. hey How's fine. it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm good. Did you bike here? Oh, wow. Look at you. Over the Brooklyn Bridge. After Scott got hydrated, we sat down for a two and a half hour interview, which you have obviously heard parts of over the course of this podcast. Toward the end of our conversation, we focused on the most recent week and a half and the jarring nature of HQ's shutdown. The writing was on the wall to me. It seemed like this was going to end, barring any dramatic strategic shift or some, you know, new virality with a new show that they could launch. But it's just, uh, ultimately, it's a shame for those 25 people who were left holding the bag. It's unfortunate to end that way with, you know, to just so unceremoniously. And here it was on a Friday, no warning, Valentine's Day holiday weekend, you're done, no severance, liquidated, you're gone. Yeah, I mean, I was asking how you felt because you tweeted something I would say, pretty uh, harsh about the company. Yeah, I mean, I, t I tweeted what I felt was what needed to be said, which is, you know, <clears throat> the reports 
that I guess Russ had put out there, that his statement said that, uh, you know, this fell apart last minute due to some, uh, you know, we had a deal and it fell through and uh, it was supposed to close tomorrow, which would be a Saturday, which doesn't quite make sense to me. Deals don't normally close on Saturday. But anyway, the, the statement itself was a little off again. But the larger sentiment of the statement was that this was unavoidable and uh, because the investors are no longer funding the company and putting the blame on the investors and we couldn't sell it. It's like, no, man, this was not inevitable. And, that, and that's something that also bothered me all the time because even Colin would say, it. look, it's natural churn. This is natural burn rate. Players come and go. You know, there's the life cycle of apps. They go up and they go down and they go up and they go down. And it just, I kept like banging my head against the wall saying, guys, no, 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 you don't get it. You know, climate change, you could argue is natural to a degree, but there's also a massive man-made element to climate change, right? The deniers point to, oh, the, the, the eons and the cyclical nature of things and the, the ice age. Yeah, okay, there's macro grand level climate change. But you can't deny that in the last 150 years, human behavior has contributed to the rapid climate change that we're seeing now. And that's exactly how I saw it with HQ. Yes, there is a natural burn rate and churn rate for users, but we didn't do ourselves any favors by not having any new features, any new games, keeping the same exact schedule, not mixing anything up. So in my tweet, it was a combination of arrogance, hubris. We know what we're doing. We're better than everybody. We're the golden goose. And uh, that attitude permeated everything from the top down in HQ. You wanted people to know that. I wanted people to know that because that's the truth. That's simply the truth. And I don't want this to repeat. I don't want the cycle to repeat itself, frankly. This happens in this industry, this tech industry, that uh, I'm not a fan of after my experience. Again, coming from the outside, realizing that this is how it works, that just VCs give tens of millions of dollars to people who may not be capable of running companies, may not have the business sense. You know, I, I minored in, in business and entrepreneurship. Actually, I was one credit shy. I was one credit shy of a business and entrepreneurship minor in college. My school was telling me, hey, take another class, uh, take another course, get that credit so you can get the minor. And I had the business sense to not spend money on another course to get that stupid credit, to get that stupid minor, because it didn't mean anything. So I, I, <laughs> that's the sense that I had. I, I mean, I felt like I was more business savvy coming into this than the people who are running the company when you look at their background. I just don't get it. I, just, I don't get how this happens in this industry, how people continually get money like this. And it's a wild story, the whole thing. And it sh frankly, it should not have ended this way. That's the greatest sorrow for me because we had the ingredients. We had the show. We had the numbers. We had the talent behind the scenes working there. We just did not have the leadership and the management skills. You also had a brief communication with Russ on Twitter. Can you tell me about that? I mean, I, I, I said what I said on Twitter. I don't know if I need to elaborate on it, but it's just, uh, it is what it is. As Joe Pesci and the Irishman says, it is what it is. This is the type of personality you're dealing with who is running the company. And when you have that from the top down, you have to almost look at us as victims here. And you have to look at the investors almost as victims. I mean, these are people who are seduced by a smooth talking, uh, you know, manipulative con artists, essentially, you know, I mean, you know, what, what do you have to back it up with? Clearly, you don't have the management skills, the leadership skills, the business savvy, the acumen. So what did you, how did you get this money? I'm still curious. How do these people get that kind of money and that kind of confidence to be instated as CEO when they haven't demonstrated any ability to back it up? 
I don't know. I'm asking. Finally, I turned the conversation toward this podcast. So that brings us to present day. I flew into town last week and we had coffee on Thursday. And I tried to convince you to be on this podcast. And you're here right now. So thank you for that. I'm here. Um, after our meeting, I got a tip that said you were working on a competing project, something like a docu-series. Can you speak to your role in that development? Um, I mean, that's not true. Right? Oh, it's not? I mean, uh, no, I mean, there's nothing. No, nothing's been this. You know, this is the the reason I'm talking to you is because, if, you know, you're a you're doing a journalistic project here. This is going to be fact checked. And, uh, you know, what I've spoken is the truth. And, uh, you know, this is uh, this is the way this is the best avenue to tell the story. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. I also became aware that through an intermediary, you contacted my boss, Bill Simmons, on Thursday. Do you want to offer any context for why you did that? Well, I was just trying to, uh, again, get a sense of what this project is. I mean, I wasn't fully, fully scoped into it, which is why I'm glad we had our conversation as yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. So this is, it's good to know that what you're doing is a rigorous, uh, again, journalistic uh, report. I really appreciate you sitting with me. Is there anything you wanted to add? I was hoping to have a forthright conversation with Scott about the phenomenon of made-for-movie personal dramas. About how maybe the next best thing to exiting a company as a young millionaire might be selling the story of its demise. About this weird, engagement-driven world we both have to make a living in. But we didn't get there. We were both defending our own stake in the modern-day epic that was HQ. He had written a narrative with its own heroes, villains, and systemic evils. One that didn't fit perfectly into mine. And frankly, I was worried that if I brought up his Slack messages during our interview, he might lead another charge to freeze me out. I asked Scott about them later on. He said he was just looking out for his former coworkers, and that he stood by everything he'd said. I spent the rest of my time in New York meeting with and interviewing former HQ employees. Those who'd recently been laid off were still working through a combination of shock and anger, appalled that their boss had somehow dissolved the company and announced its reboot in less than a week. Others, who had more distance from HQ, seemed more resigned to the fact that this was just how the startup world worked. Either way, none of them were looped in on the new HQ. I had hoped to speak to Russ while I was in town, but he'd hired another PR firm, which kicked off a long saga of phone calls and emails that never got me much of anywhere. So I flew home to Los Angeles, and within a couple of weeks, the whole world changed. The spread of COVID-19 grounded us all at home in quarantine and relegated me to recording this podcast in my closet. Pretty soon, I saw tweets here and there theorizing that HQ would have been a big hit while we were all stuck inside. Then, lo and behold, on March 29th, I received a push notification from HQ Trivia. What is going on? What has been up, HQties? Woo! We've gone for a while. I mean, I haven't flipped a quarter in like seven weeks. It's me, your boy. Your host with the most, holding it down from coast to coast. Smooth as the butter that you put on your toast. The one and only money flipping Matt Richards. Yeah! Luckily, we've all been hard at work building the brand new, just for you, HQ Chapter 2. 
sure enough, Matt Richards was there, glitching on the screen. Last time I'd seen him, he was drunkenly blaming HQ investors for the app's demise. Now he was thanking them. Specifically, a new mysterious benefactor who had merged to reboot the company amid the pandemic. When I spoke to Matt this spring, he said he was happy to have the gig again, but he had no idea who was funding it or why that was such a secret. He just chose to remain anonymous. (laughs) And I'm like, okay, whatever. (laughs) Cool. I'm super appreciative of whoever this person is or whoever these people are. Actually, according to a recent lawsuit filed against the app's parent company, Intermedia Labs, HQ was acquired by this anonymous benefactor. And another mysterious HQ investor, a limited partnership called Jagger's House, wants to know the circumstances of the deal. The lawsuit says that Jagger's House has, quote, a credible basis to believe that Intermedia's directors and or officers have engaged in mismanagement or wrongdoing in violation of their fiduciary duties by entering into the very speedy asset sale. Jeremy Liu from Lightspeed Ventures declined to comment. Russ's PR team did not respond. In terms of what new HQ looked like from the inside, sources from the rogue Slack told me that most former employees had nothing to do with this relaunch. Or, if they did, they weren't being very vocal about it. The staff Matt was working with was smaller and scrappier than before. When I get here, it's just me and Gab, the tech producer, who's awesome. Love Gab. Shout out to Gab. And Russ, sometimes they alternate who's tech producing the games. We have some engineers and some designers, but I'm only seeing them on Slack, Chess King T, Tyler, the community guy. And most notably, since it shut down in February, the app had undergone an ethical rebrand. It was now, in addition to a trivia show, a mouthpiece for charitable efforts amidst the pandemic. Thanks to our CEO, Russ, plus Jeremy, and all the board members and the supporters of the fight against COVID-19 who found a way to do it. Tonight, we are back to stay and staying positive in these unsteady times. Every game is going to have a cash prize for you and a donation to help those affected by the pandemic. Many former employees told me this comeback felt cynical and performative. And given all that I'd learned about what it was like to work at HQ, I'd have to agree. Even so, this is what passes for business strategy in the year 2020. What better way to bring an app back on people's radar than to couple it with the very thing at the top of everyone's mind? Money to charity is money to charity, even if there are still former HQ employees struggling to find a job during a recession. But despite its makeover, this game that had ambitions for world domination was humbled. Since its March 29th return, HQ Trivia was grasping onto fewer than 100,000 users per game, rather than a million, and was giving away thousands of dollars as opposed to hundreds of thousands. The once-hyped startup had returned to operating as it did in the very beginning, as a small business. We have a specially chosen theme for tonight's game, okay? It's very close to our hearts. It's rebirths, returns, and comebacks. HQ's Rise and Fall is a story about how our modern economy functions. It shows what can go wrong when value is defined by attention. It illustrates Silicon Valley's foolhardy tendency to mistake talent for business savvy and put the wrong people in charge. And it demonstrates the way startups encourage their employees to dissolve the boundaries between their work and personal lives, only to disappoint them when things go south. 
But to me, HQ's return was proof that, depending on your level of shamelessness, there's always a chance for reinvention on the internet. That has just as much to do with the drama-hungry media ecosystem we live in as it does our short attention spans and the metrics we use to measure success. The way to make it as a startup is to play the attention economy, to grow an audience as fast as possible, even if that means betting on an unlikely future and endlessly rebranding a company as its culture suffers from within. The goal is always higher numbers, higher returns, more, more, more. But in that never-ending quest for expansion, a lot gets ignored. Relationships, work-life balance, community, and the ability to see the world outside of a hypercharged contest for engagement. Really, it's much simpler to think of it all as just one big game. I can't believe we're back. I'm so excited right now. You're wired up. I'm fired up. Let's get back on the trivia train. Ready? Ain't nothing to it but to HQ it. Let's get it cracking with question number one. Boom Bust HQ Trivia was written and reported by me, Alyssa Bereznak. It was produced by Noah, can we unplug your fridge, Malalay? Isaac, no superguts, Lee. And Amanda, let's add a pause here, Dobbins. It was story edited with stunning precision by Amanda Dobbins, and every jam you heard in the background of this pod was made in the early hours of the morning by Isaac Lee. Special thanks to Noah for keeping us all on track and steering the ship. This podcast would not have been possible without early days researcher Charlotte Gadu, our steadfast fact checker, Daniel Chen, and our copy chief, Craig Gaines, who has a special talent for making everything I write sound smarter. Much appreciation to Elias Stein, who, along with art direction from David Shoemaker, designed our awesome logo. Thank you to Sean Fennessy and Juliet Littman, who guided the project to completion and offered both practical and thematic feedback to keep it on course. And a special thanks to Bill Simmons for making this project possible. A little over a year ago, I was on a road trip in Portugal and looked at my phone to see a Slack message about a potential HQ podcast. Here we are now. I'm grateful for the opportunity. And thanks to all of you for listening. 